You're listening to Podcasts with Park Rangers, a show where we bring to you stories of the national parks and historic sites from those who know them best, park rangers. Get to know each park ranger for their love of the parks as we discuss history, science, and the beauty of nature from a unique perspective. I'm your host, Lucas VK. Today we interview Cynthia Languth, an interpretive park ranger at Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. I mean, this park is home for me. It's a landscape that just feels like home. I try to escape for a couple backpacking trips every summer, kind of recenter myself, reinvigorate myself. But even just, you know, looking out on this landscape can, can give me a little jolt of that when I need it, which is great. Stay tuned, we'll talk about elk, the alpine tundra, and what it takes to dig the highest elevation visitor center in the United States out from over 10 feet of snow every year. If you've been enjoying our podcast, we hope to keep this show on the road with your support. As little as $2 a month gets you access to bonus interview questions. Other levels get bonus episodes, invites to hike with us, and more. If you're interested in joining our exclusive community, check out our Patreon page via the show notes or visit podcastswithparkrangers.com for more info. In the mountains of Colorado, the elk rule Rocky Mountain National Park. Between the park and the Estes Valley, there are over 2,000 elk, many of which stay in the area all winter long. However, it wasn't always the case that the elk were king. In the late 1890s, they were hunted intensively, and few remained in the area. A short time later, before the area was designated a national park, 49 elk were moved from Yellowstone to Rocky to re-establish the population. Today, the descendants of that elk herd can be seen all over the park, and for many visitors, the most exciting time of year is the elk rut. The male elk, also known as bulls, bugle and proudly display their antlers to attract the female elk, known as cows. 1,100-pound bulls round up their harem in the meadows of the park and occasionally spar with a competitor. Listen as two bulls compete for dominance. In these matches, it's not uncommon for a bull to break his antlers or be left with half a rack of horns. The destruction isn't permanent though, as all bulls lose their antlers every year to regrow in the spring. In May of the following year, the baby elk are born. The cows birth one to two babies a year and are very protective of these additions to the herd. The bulls and male yearlings born the previous year start to regrow their horns at a rapid rate, at nearly an inch of antler a day. A protective layer of velvet skin develops on the horns, and bulls are found scraping off the layer on trees to prepare for the rut once again in the fall. In the summers, elk can be seen in the alpine areas of the park, feasting on the flourishing vegetation. To learn more about them and the alpine tundra itself, 
we sit down with ranger Cynthia Languth. So my name is Cynthia Languth. I'm a interpretive park ranger here at Rocky Mountain National Park. And uh, welcome to Rocky Mountain National Park. Ranger Cynthia has been with the National Park Service for nearly 20 years. As a child, she was captured by landscapes of the West on National Park road trips with her family. We always took big family road trips in the summer and we traveled on the cheap. So we would visit national parks. We would, you know, stay in cheap hotels along the way, eat picnics at the, you know, picnic areas in the parks. And I think from an early age, it was more the aesthetics of the parks that really kind of like captured me in my imagination, just the landscapes of the West, having grown up in the, in the Midwest, you know, the mountains and the desert and the wide open spaces really kind of became, I think, woven into my being as a, as a child. From a young age, Ranger Cynthia knew she wanted to be a park ranger. So by the time I was um, like a preteen, I decided, you know, I wanted to be a park ranger. And I really honestly didn't know what park rangers did because we weren't the family that interacted with park rangers a lot. We stopped at visitor centers, did our own thing, kind of did the driving tour of parks, but we didn't go on ranger hikes. We didn't really interact a whole lot. We didn't camp. So um, I think I just knew they worked and lived in national parks. So that was good enough um, at that point. And it uh, didn't really change, you know, my direction of, of what I wanted to do. And I, from an early age, also knew that I wanted to live in the West. So you know, fortunate to be able to kind of just continue down that path uh, into college and, and after. Cynthia started as an intern at Rocky and continued as a seasonal ranger in the park system. My internship was my, it was my first introduction to the National Park Service. After my internship, I worked seasonally for several years. So I okay. did work at Rocky Mountain National Park, but I also worked a season at Grand Teton, a season at Olympic National Park, a season, a couple seasons actually in Death Valley National Park uh -huh. um, in the winter. And, and then once I was able to get a permanent year round job, I worked at a few additional parks, uh, Point Reyes National Seashore okay. in California and uh, Joshua Tree National Park. Hmm. You've experienced kind of different flavors of the park service. It hasn't yeah. all been mountains or alpine, Definitely little, little desert. different flavors. Yeah, I, I, I kind of um, split my my uh, passion between deserts and mountains. So it's been nice yeah. to work in both types of parks. Right, and also a seashore. And also a seashore, which was a really unique um, new environment for me to learn and and uh, and get to know. So yeah, it's been, it's been fun. So uh, you are a park naturalist. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you're an interpretive ranger. Is being a park naturalist similar in ways, or is there some overlap, or maybe? maybe so I think a, a lot of people of a... use the terms interchangeably. Naturalist, I think, has a little bit more of a um, you know lengthy history that term. Uh, but interpreters, you know, we don't just talk about nature. Mm -hmm. We talk about human history and culture and society and sure. and how all of those things play together with with the natural environment in our mm -hmm. national parks and and kind of all those pieces are part of the story so you know interpreter i think is just a little more holistic term a little more inclusive term to use for what we do in the parks but i think naturalist resonates with a lot of people because that's a term they're familiar with you know for a long time that's been a, a term that we've used to describe the kind of work that park rangers do in national parks right but interpreter is kind of what we our profession is known as so. okay and of course there are interpreters in areas that are 
perhaps less natural, the more historic sites. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's people who just interpret cultural history and, you know, certainly you can't separate the two completely in any instance, but mm -hmm. there's definitely national parks that the story they tell is much more a cultural story. And so the interpreters there, you know, definitely wouldn't call themselves naturalists because, you know, they would call themselves his historians probably before they would consider a term like naturalist. Right. But here your role is very much as a, a naturalist as well for as the most part yes yeah. yes i think a lot of the stories we tell here do have to do with the you know the natural resources in the park mm -hmm. but also the culture yeah so i'm wondering if you can you you've been here at rocky mountain national park for a while you've mm -hmm. experienced a good bit of this very large unit yeah uh, and also have a unique insight into a unique area which is the alpine mm -hmm. tundra so can you describe for the listeners just in a general sense what Rocky Mountain National Park is like? I think Rocky Mountain National Park for a lot of people is it's you know it's a, it's a mountain park. You've got these incredible dramatic mountain peaks that have been sculpted by glaciers. So you've got this bare rugged rock with with long lingering snow throughout the summer. You've got these dense beautiful forests at lower elevations, you've got wide open, sunny, warm meadows, and that's, that's just in the summertime. And then in the winter, you have this whole other world of, of a high mountain ecosystem that's you know buried in snow for eight months of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, I mean, it's very much a mountain park. I think the scenery here is what most people are first struck with, but then there's just a lot of nuance with the various environments because of the mountains and all the different elevations uh, and then the fact that you have the east side and west side of the mountains and that affects the weather and the climate and therefore it affects you know how a forest might feel on one slope versus another and so right. i think as you get to know a park like this the scenery is still kind of what speaks to you most loudly but then all these other nuances become the quieter voices that you get to know mm -hmm. And I think the alpine tundra in this park, the, the highest elevations are, for a lot of people, some of the most dramatic places to visit in the park. Certainly. Yeah, you get these expansive views above the tree line. You do. Right? It feels otherworldly, I think, in a lot of ways. It's uncomfortable, you know? I think there's a comfort to being in the forest. Mm -hmm. Having trees, they kind of anchor us into what's normal in our in our lives. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, for a lot of people, I think when they get above that limit where trees can grow, it just it feels like a whole different planet almost. And and then there's all these unexpected discoveries of, you know, all the plants that grow up there and interesting animals and the fact that you could leave Denver in your flip-flops and tank top and now you're freezing <laughs> when you get out of your car at, you know, um, higher elevation. So yeah. Yeah, it's just a really unique part of the park, and I think it's one of the things that makes this park really special. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the, the Alpine Visitor Center, and we are we are not there right now. We're talking <laughs> to <possible>. you. <laughs> no, we're talking to you in in early May. So why is that that we're we're not in that that yeah, Alpine Visitor so Center? So <laughs> I think I think one of the things that's really cool about Rocky Mountain National Park is this road that we have through the heart of the park, Trail Ridge Road. It's the highest through paved highway in the US. And because it's high and it stays high, you know, it's not like a lot of mountain passes that just go up and kind of peak and then you go right back down again. Mm -hmm. You go up and you stay up high, you know, meandering along these super high elevation, rolling 
um, mountaintops. And for, what sort of elevation are we talking we're about? We're talking here? like 11,000 feet to 12,000 feet mm -hmm. for 10 miles. And so that huge stretch of road that's at that elevation just makes it impossible to keep open year round. So the road closes, the visitor center gets buried in snow, and then we don't really start plowing and digging it out until mid to late April. Mm -hmm. And so it's not even possible for us to be at the Alpine Visitor Center right now. We haven't even reached the Alpine Visitor Center with plows yet to see how high the snow is on the eaves of the building. And that's still another week or so out before we get to that point. And that's uh, it's a yearly exploration. It <laughs> is. And it's a crazy, ridiculous place to have a visitor center in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. But that's what makes it so awesome and so special, I think, is because it is just such a ridiculous place to have a building. Right. Um, you know, sitting at almost 12,000 feet and buried in snow for, you know, six, seven months of the year. So, yeah, efforts are underway right now to mm -hmm. get up there. They are. But yeah. it's, it's kind of been a drier year mm -hmm. this year. And yet, it's still buried. You haven't got up, gotten up there yet. Yeah, we're uh, certainly anticipating less snow, but uh -huh. it'll still be an undertaking to dig the building out. Yeah. How much snow does the visitor center up there get typically on an, on an average? So we don't actually measure the snow um, okay. in that area. It's really hard in the Alpine here to measure snow because of the wind. The wind redistributes uh, right. the snow so much. So we tend to have either areas that drift in 10, 20 feet deep and then other areas where there's just a very thin, if any, snow for m much of the winter because of the high winds. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's not unusual for the building to have 8, 10 feet of snow uh, up against the, the walls, exterior walls, and up onto the roof. Uh, in some years, it even goes up to the peak, which is 12, 14 feet high. Yeah. So it's, um, it's a lot of snow. <laughs> even in a dry <laughs> year, it's a, it's a lot of snow. Yeah. Still significant. So it what is. are some of the challenges involved in keeping a, a visitor center open even, what, four months out mm -hmm. of the year? Yeah, so late May through early October. Early in the season, the challenges, of course, are just getting the building accessible, you mm -hmm. know, literally digging out the doors of the building. Yeah. And then we don't have any utilities that aren't on site up there so the electricity is generated on site with um, generators mm -hmm. and uh, the water is from a well on site we have a point-to-point -point microwave system for communications via phones you know we don't have phone lines you don't really get a cell signal there so it's, right. it's very much off the grid so just the challenges that go into to that side of things just having a functionality of a building like that we can't have water early in the season when we're open to the public because our our system isn't capable of, of not freezing mm -hmm. with the low temperatures we still can tend to get it in late may and early june and then the same thing in september we have to winterize our running water system before we close to the public so there's these periods of time where we're the busiest visitor center in the park and yet you know there's outhouses and that's it and there's yeah. no running water which i think is a little bit of a dichotomy for people they're just not expecting that kind of busy visitor center, but very basic primitive services. Yeah. Um, so that can be challenging too. And then it's challenging really for the visitors up there a lot of times, the high altitude, you know, we get a lot of visitors who just physically, you know, medically can't handle that altitude. And so we have a, an EMS facility 
attached to our visitor center where we can help people who get into trouble up there. Okay. But that's kind of an extra layer of challenge with that operation being such high elevation mm -hmm. is that we don't just have to help folks plan their visit and make safe choices about where to hike in the park. We also sometimes have to provide them with life-saving medical care, which is a whole other layer of complexity to an already really busy operation. Yeah. And with that thin air and some of those <laughs> considerations, I imagine there's special training for everyone who's up there staffing the building mm -hmm. as well. So all of the rangers that work at the Alpine Visitor Center are not only you know, interpreters or naturalists, as you call them, but mm -hmm. they're also EMTs. Right. Um, it's a requirement of the job, which is kind of a unique combination of skills. Mm -hmm. So it takes, uh, you know, a unique individual that wants to combine those two passions and skill levels to work there. Yeah. To educate, but but also be able to aid. Yeah, in, definitely, in and be and have the mindset to handle, mm -hmm. you know, emergencies in a in a you know in an efficient and calm manner. Right. Not everybody has that desire or talent. So. Right. We've been up there, but perhaps listeners haven't experienced mm -hmm. this visitor center. It's a striking building. It's a it's a large building. It's it looks very well established, even mm -hmm. though it is kind of an off-grid, as you put mm -hmm. it, facility. So what makes that, that whole area and that visitor center, the visitor center is built to kind of withstand the, the environment up there. Definitely. So it was, um, it was built in the 1960s, and the building adjacent to the visitor center was built in the 1930s. So there's been mm. infrastructure at that location for a really long time which is surprising in and of itself. But, you know, the design of the building took into account the snow loading on the roof mm -hmm. and the, you know, 100 mile per hour plus winds that are not uncommon in the wintertime. Right. And then, then kind of the shoulder season, what, you know, how does that snow melt and where does it go? And those things, I think, came into play when they designed the visitor center. And yeah, it's just a unique place to have a facility like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the highest visitor center in any national park. Uh, so that alone makes it kind of special. And then the environment it's in is just really harsh for much of the year. Right. So back to the, this alpine area and kind of the, the climate and how it, it is unique, mm -hmm. both in terms of animal life, plant life, you were talking about well, both having kind of some unique characteristics. Definitely, you know, because it is such a challenging environment just when it comes to the climate and the weather and the conditions, a lot of the plants and animals, especially those that live there year round, when it comes to the animals, mm -hmm. have to be really well suited to deal with that environment. So when it comes to the plant life, I think a lot of people are really surprised at the variety. There's over 300 species of plants that make their home in the high elevations here in the Southern Rockies. And the variety of wildflowers that bloom in the summer is really striking. Yeah. I think a lot of people expect a more barren environment when they're driving through. And then when they take the time to stop and get out, all of a sudden there's this miniature wildflower garden at their feet. And it's yeah. really surprising and you know almost magical in a way this little miniature garden of plants that that really thrives in that environment through all these unique adaptations of cheating the growing season by having huge tap roots that store energy kind of like a pantry or you know having hairs covering the plant tissues you know much like we'd put on a jacket yeah. these fuzzy little plants that are able to stay warm 
and silvery hairs that reflect back the super intense UV radiation that you get at that elevation because mm-hmm. you're you know literally closer to the sun so there's oh, yeah. less atmosphere filtering the intense sunlight to the fact that most of the plants up there are long living you know year after year the same plant is working up the energy to flower after 20 years and then put on a few more flowers the next year and you know some of the plants up there are 50 100 years old you can't as a plant do all of your steps in life in one season because the season's so short so mm-hmm. there's just so much you know unique adaptations that the plants have up there and and then the animals i mean things like pika and marmots and in the summer the elk up there grazing off those big huge meadows full of flowers and grasses mm-hmm. it's just it's really unique and i think a lot of people you know there's iconic pieces of it for them like those hillsides full of flowers in the summer or the pika that are scurrying frantically around to gather food and store it for the winter or the marmots you know lazing out on a rock catching the sun because they're going to be hibernating for eight to nine months you know there's just it's just a really unique place and i think when people take the time to kind of pick up on some of those really special adaptations and the nuances of of the environment up there it really becomes a special landscape for them certainly is for me it's my happy place (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's where you found yourself now for for some time yes there's a reason i've been at this park for quite some time i really i love the alpine tundra here i love the complexity of the operation up there at the alpine visitor center Mm -hmm. it's just a really it's a great place so you mentioned the elk and that's actually a common draw it's one of the most (laughs) common animals to be seen mm-hmm. uh, within Rocky. So elk actually come up to the tundra in the fall for the, the rut. So what is, what is this? What's that all about? So the elk actually come down from the tundra in the fall ah, for the that's rut. Right. Okay. <laughs> they come up to the tundra in the, in the summer for in the, the summertime. From, for the right. forage. You know, as things are drying out and browning up down low, it's still green up high. You know, the season kind of is delayed as you go up in elevation. So yeah. it's spring right now down here um, near the Beaver Meadows Visitor Center. We have flowers popping out, but you go up a thousand feet and there's still, you know, 20 inches of snow on the ground. <laughs> yeah. So because of that elevational change, the elk kind of follow the melting snow and the greening mm-hmm. grass up the mountains, spend the summer in the high elevations. And then, you know, as the days start to get shorter, gets a little cooler, it kind of signals to them, hey, it's time to start moving back down to those big, uh, meadows at lower elevation for the for the rut the mating season okay and yeah that is a huge draw at rocky mountain national park you know in, in terms of just watchable wildlife this is a fantastic park you know i think there's other parks that that are known for that and and um sometimes i don't think that's what people first think of when they think of rocky mountain national park but elk deer bighorn sheep coyotes you know birds squirrels we we have a lot of really great wildlife viewing here in the park and the elk are definitely like the superstars right. when it comes to wildlife for sure yeah we saw a few elk on the drive up here to the the beaver creek visitor center and also some snow yeah <laughs> yep yeah it's it... and we're supposed to get some snow tonight are we uh, potentially down at this elevation okay so what elevation are we at right now we're at about seven thousand eight hundred feet here at the visitor center and then it's all up from yep. here pretty much <laughs> all uphill 
to about 11 to 12,000 feet. Yeah, so the road peaks area. at uh, 12,183 feet in elevation. Mm -hmm. And then the visitor center sets it just shy of 12,000 feet. Right. Definitely a unique experience to be able to come in the summertime mm -hmm. and get up into those areas where things are in, in bloom. And yeah. once things have melted, it's, it's almost difficult to imagine it being all under, you mentioned like 20 feet of snow at times. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. It's, um, I think the accessibility of our high mountain areas here is really great because a lot of people wouldn't be able to experience that kind of environment if it wasn't for Trail Ridge Road. Mm -hmm. Trail Ridge Road has a bit of history as well. It does. Yeah. yeah, it was built um, in the late 20s, early 30s, and it's a unique road in, in all of the United States. Right. So we've captured some photographs of marmots and of pika. Pika are difficult. They're <laughs> to always photograph. moving. They are. Always moving. Marmots tend to pose a little bit more for photos. Yeah, lazing up on the rocks, exactly. as you mentioned, yeah. during the summer months. So what else can you tell us about those animals? Are they unique to the, the tundra area? So in this part of the country, pika are definitely um, pretty unique to the tundra. You'll sometimes find them living in areas below tree line, but it has to be you know just perfect, just right. Mm -hmm. So they tend to be an alpine animal here just because of their requirements for um, cool temperatures, they're really good at storing heat mm. uh, with their metabolism and their, their size, you know, their size of a softball, but they're not good at shedding heat. So they can't live in warm environments. They have to be able to escape warm days, even in the tundra here now with uh, warmer temperatures being more common. They have to have rock piles that they can kind of escape into, kind of like going in the basement mm -hmm. to stay cool. And then they don't hibernate. A lot of people are really fascinated by that. You know, this animal that spends its entire life in a really harsh environment where, you know, snow starts to accumulate by October, doesn't completely melt until June, uh, and they they don't sleep. What do they do? <laughs> so they have to they have to gather food basically all summer long. So that's why they're really hard to photograph sometimes because they're always moving. They're always yeah. running back and forth from their their rock piles where they live out into a meadow to to clip off some flowers and grasses and then they lay them out to dry and they build these huge hay piles and then all winter long they just munch on their hay piles hmm. and survive uh, the winter pretty pretty well as long as they're in an area where the snow accumulates the snow actually provides a nice insulating layer over their burrows in the rock piles okay um, so low snowfall years are a little dicey for pika hmm. um, because they don't have that insulative layer of snow so if the temperatures get really cold which they tend to do regardless of if we have a lot of snow or not they can freeze to death in the winter time mm. uh, which is kind of interesting it's not what you think of when you think of a changing climate affecting an animal right but that's definitely a, a risk the pikas have here so they actually want the snow the snow is they good want to see um, more of it mm. snow in general is is helpful to a lot of animals just because mm -hmm. it either insulates them if they live underground or at ground level um, it can elevate them, you know, for, for some animals, it's like an elevator. All of a sudden it gets you into reach of food. You may not have been able to nibble on before. Mm. If you can walk on the snow, like some of the smaller hares and rabbits. Yeah. And then, yeah, just that insulative quality of snow is so important yeah. and definitely important to the marmots too. Marmots are another animal people tend to think of as an alpine animal, but they're really more found at all elevations in the park but they they hibernate so they need that warm 
you know, layer of snow to protect them when they're hibernating too. Mm -hmm. Although since they communally hibernate, they kind of have a slumber party uh, where they're all keeping each other warm and and tend to tend to do okay if the snow is a little um, less. So they snuggle up for for body heat. They do. They do. And they sleep. I mean, they go to they go to bed in September and they do not Mm. wake up until May. Oh, really? Uh, And that is a long time out of every year to be hibernating, you know. Yeah, they spend more of their lives hibernating than they do awake, which is pretty remarkable. And then when they're awake, they they're easier to photograph because they're often up on rocks. Yeah, they tend to they tend to kind of have a lazier lifestyle because they Mm -hmm. have to build up a lot of body fat for hibernation to survive hibernation. So they tend to not exert excess energy when unless, you know, it's absolutely needed. So they spend a lot of time eating and taking naps. Yeah. Which they can be seen doing above treeline in particular, which they I guess can. is why people think of them as, as yes, more alpine. Yes, yes. I mean, you'll find them all the way down into the foothills, mm-hmm. but they definitely are thought of more as an alpine animal, mm-hmm. kind of the high elevation cousin of the woodchuck. Ah. So. <laughs> so what is your favorite thing about Rocky Mountain National Park? You've uh-huh. been drawn back here. You know, for me, the Alpine Tundra is, you know, it really is my happy place. It's it's where if I'm having a really bad day, I just need to close my eyes and picture one of those wildflower, you know, covered slopes uh, along Trail Ridge Road. And it kind of centers me again. Um, I, I tend to really like wide open spaces. And I think that's one reason why I'm really drawn to the Alpine Tundra here in the park and also to the Um, to the desert. You know, I mentioned early on, I kind of split my passion between the desert and the mountains. And for the mountains, it's always been the, those really wide open high areas of the mountains, um, that, that are kind of rugged, uh, harsh, you know, where you can tell like, it's not a, it's not a friendly place in a lot of ways Mm. because of the the environment, much like the desert. I think I like both of those environments for many of the same reasons, Mm. but the Alpine tundra here is definitely what my my favorite part of Rocky Mountain National Park is the Alpine Tundra. It's just really unique, really special, and I think if you take the time to get to know it, it it's just a landscape that'll just blow your mind. Yeah. You mentioned that it's it's kind of a a rugged area. It's kind of a sensitive area as well, so I imagine there's a, a good bit of preservation and mm-hmm. education that goes into through a lot of visitorship yeah. keeping those areas it is a really sensitive environment and you know i think sometimes i think people are surprised by that because you think about it being so harsh so what lives there has to be tough right Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's definitely the case but on the flip side because especially in terms of the plants because the growing season is so short they tend to grow very slowly so we can have huge impacts in a relatively short amount of time so just a couple visitors walking off of a trail and you know, grinding their feet while they're turning around, taking pictures, will wipe out maybe 10, 20 years of growth for some of the plants here. And then it takes them that long to catch back up. So mm-hmm. there's a cumulative effect when you have a lot of visitors in one area going off of hardened surfaces. And now that the park gets four and a half million visitors, that's a big concern. So indeed, you know, any of the popular areas up there, visitors can can do a huge service by just staying on the sidewalk, staying on the trails, staying in the parking areas. You know, you may think it's just it's just me walking over there to get this photograph, but if that was a draw for you, it's probably a draw for many people. So 
Limiting that impact can make a huge difference for how resilient that plant community is long term. Mm -hmm. There's other challenges that the alpine tundra is facing with changes in precipitation and temperatures and you yeah. know, climate shifts. So I think the more we can limit our impacts, uh, knowing that so many people have access to that incredible landscape, the more resilient that landscape will be long term so that you know my kids can come here in 40 years and bring their kids and yeah. have an, a similar amazing magical quality experience in a healthy environment. And I think that's where everyday visitors have the ability to impact down the road what this environment is going to be mm -hmm. for the future. Yeah. So just being aware of yourself as a steward. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And, and taking that extra moment to say, okay, am I being Am I being selfish and wanting to get that perfect photograph? And what are the potential impacts of me doing that? And, yeah. and then just, you know, we, we set examples for fellow humans every day in the actions we take and the choices we make. And so I think in a place like Rocky Mountain National Park, thinking about the act actions that you have and how they influence others is important too. Um, you know, we're social creatures and we tend to, to look at those around us and and make decisions based on what other people people mm -hmm. are doing. So if we're making good decisions, then that has a wonderful domino effect, as does making bad decisions. Right. So. Yeah. You will emulate what you see around. Exactly. <laughs> so when you think about Rocky Mountain National Park, which is a huge area, and you you deal very much in the alpine areas, but as a whole, what does this park make you feel? I mean, this park is home for me. You know, it's, it's a landscape that just feels like home. And it also makes me feel, you know, connected to, to nature. It makes me feel connected to the future in a very tangible way now that I'm a parent, but, but also just connected to the future in terms of helping people be inspired by this place and connect what's happening here to what is happening at home for them and the choices that they make, whether those be choices in terms of, you know, how they consume and, and how they drive and how they just how they how they live um, and how those choices can impact this place. I think the role that I play in that story, you know, helps me feel connected to a more hopeful future mm. than I think we are exposed to a lot of times. You know, there's so much doom and gloom out there. So I think a place like Rocky Mountain National Park helps you stay balanced in our, you know, in our world today when there's so much you can get sucked into being awful and um, sad and, you know, getting back out in the park and going for a hike or, you know, stopping along Trail Ridge Road to literally smell the flowers, mm -hmm. you know, really helps me um, stay grounded and hopeful and comforted that you know, this is still a, a, an amazing place and there's still wonderful people in the world that value places like this and right. protecting them into the future. Yeah. So it allows you kind of an opportunity to recenter sorts. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think for me, going into nature does that in general. You know, I, I try to escape for a couple backpacking trips every summer mm. just to get away and, and kind of recenter myself and, and reinvigorate myself. But even just, you know, looking out on this landscape can can give me a little jolt of that when i need it yeah. which is great cool 
So going a little larger picture from Rocky Mountain, um, what is the importance of the national park system uh, as a whole, and why do you feel it's important to preserve it? Yeah, that's actually a complicated question because I think it's it's not just one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in general, uh, even though I am personally really drawn to natural parks and nature and natural landscapes, I think the national park system as a whole, most importantly, preserves just this multifaceted, complex, sometimes ugly, oftentimes beautiful um, fabric of who we are as as a country, you know, whether that's the fact that we have set aside these iconic, amazing natural landscapes, or that we've set aside places where we've done shameful things um, in the past and things that we potentially, sh- you know, definitely should be learning from mm-hmm. um, and not forgetting, you know, battlefields and monuments and historic sites. I think, you know, there's so much that the National Park Service preserves and protects and so many stories um, and, you know, the diversity of stories. I think there's something for everyone in our national parks. And I think the fact that we preserve that and we're constantly trying to tell the stories that maybe haven't been told or tell a story from a new angle Mm -hmm. to include more of the complexities of what it means to be you know, American, the history of this country, and then also like, where are we going? I think there's a lot the national parks can teach us and inspire us as we look forward to as, as um, a society. This world is a complex place, and the effect we have on the world as humans is likewise complicated. On a journey to Rocky Mountain National Park, what can we learn about ourselves? Can we look to the animals like the elk and learn how to respect places like this? The elk were brought to near extinction in the Colorado area by human hand, but because we set aside Rocky Mountain National Park and transplanted a herd, they are here today. Places like the alpine tundra are fragile, and our awareness of ourselves in the parks is important to their preservation for the future. They say, take only pictures, leave only footprints, but perhaps adding awareness of our footfalls is important too? Next time you're outside in nature, take a moment to look around you. See and appreciate the complexity. The choices we make today can affect future generations, and we can all learn by studying our past and the environment around us today. If you enjoyed what you heard, review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider to help us improve the show. For more interview content with Ranger Cynthia about the night skies in Rocky and her life outside of being a park ranger, join our Patreon community. As little as $2 a month gets you access to bonus interview questions. A link is posted in our show notes or visit podcastswithparkrangers.com. Stay with us through the final minutes for a short preview of our next episode. We like to highlight on our show ways that a typical park visitor can give back to their national parks. The Rocky Mountain Conservancy, established in 1931, is one of the oldest nonprofit cooperating organizations in the national park system. The group promotes stewardship with the park and provides educational publications, research support, 
and philanthropic aid for Rocky Mountain National Park and surrounding public lands. To learn more, visit rmconservancy.org. Even though we interview park rangers, we are not affiliated with the National Park Service, and any views expressed are not necessarily those of the Park Service. We're just fans of the national parks, like you. Coming up in episode 10 of Podcasts with Park Rangers. We take this show to new heights, over 14,000 feet to be exact, as we interview climbing ranger Kevin Sturmer to talk about Long's Peak, search and rescue, and what it's like to combine his passion with his career 